did all life on earth come from? How did it get here? The Bible declares that God created all living things during the first six days of the creation week. Is this true? Vedic scripture is many centuries older than the Bible, and it attributes creation to a dream of Brahma lasting 4,328,000,000 years. Coincidentally, scientists say that's pretty close to the age of our Earth. So I guess time is running out. But is this true? Enuma Elish is the oldest of all known creation myths written by the great-grandfathers of the biblical authors. It has the world being created in seven generations of gods. The sixth generation created man to complete creation so that the seventh divine generation could rest. Is this true? The Coptic Gospels from Egypt say that the goddess of wisdom created your god, the father god, out of an abortion of darkness and chaos. Then faith and wisdom hid themselves away so that when your god awoke, he thought he was the only thing that existed. Is this true? In fact, every ancient culture has their own creation myths, some just as strange as the Bible. Frost giants, the rainbow serpent, the cosmic egg, are they true? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says the Earth was created by a commercial engineering firm so that mice could perform experiments on humans. Is this true? Now, your Bible is a man-made mixture of myths and legends that includes a few names and places that are real and might even have some partially true accounts jumbled in with all those discordant tales. But the big important stuff you're talking about right now have no truth to them at all. They're not just allegorical metaphors, they're entirely made up, imagined out of nothing by ignorant primitives who obviously had no idea what they were talking about. Then those original tales were later adapted and appropriated by the men who produced what are now considered to be the first of the sacred fables of the Bible. The Bible has been proven wrong on every testable claim that it makes. It is not even possibly true, because everything in it is impossible. The stories in Genesis were evidently adapted from Enuma Elish and the epics of Gilgamesh and Ahatrahasis, along with some astrological lore, and were brought out of Mesopotamian polytheism around 450 BCE. An important note about all this type of folklore is that there is a word to describe the type of story that has a moral and includes magic spells like incantations, potions, wands, golems, and that center on folklorist characters like witches, wizards, dragons, and animals that talk and act like people. Those type of stories are called fairy tales. And not even children should wonder if they're really true. Another important point is that there are thousands of denominations within many different religions, all asserting with equal veracity that theirs is the absolute truth. Now, logically, only one of them could be right, and it's far more likely that all of them are wrong. And when someone converts from one religion to another, they discard one collection of ridiculous fables and adopt another equally ridiculous set. And neither one has any truth to it, meaning that there is no way that either one can prove that they got anything right. But regardless of whatever faith you come from, if you walk away from faith altogether, there's only one way to go. There isn't a thousand different options. If you don't follow faith, then you follow evidence. And the evidence only points one way. That's what you would expect of the truth. There is only one. It is self-evident and demonstrably true. So it doesn't require faith, and it's still true whether you believe it or not. Reality is indicated by evidence, not storybooks. As with Uranium-238 in its provable moment of beginning, the great pattern of all life is that it can only come from pre-existing life. This is called the law of biogenesis. Every first-year biology student knows it. 
then every biology student should know that the law of biogenesis was attributed to Louis Pasteur for disproving spontaneous generation. That's the idea that anything that was once alive still has for some time a degenerate form of life still inside it, and that this decomposing life force would ooze out of rotting organisms, producing degenerate forms of new life. Thus, recycling organic refuse such as old meat, rotting vegetables, and feces into new forms of already complex, albeit vile, viruses and living organisms from bacteria to mold and all the way to animals such as flies and even mice. This was a supernatural belief in vitalism, and Louis Pasteur disproved that using methodological naturalism. Now, one of Pasteur's contemporaries, Rudolf Virchow, proposed cell theory based on the same principle, that cells come from pre-existing cells just like life comes from life. But in both instances, he realized there was an exception. He noticed that diseased cells come from diseased cells, but there obviously had to be a first cell to contract disease, just like there had to be a first living cell. They didn't know much about paleontology back then, but they knew that modern mammals couldn't be found beneath a certain point in the fossil record. So the deeper you went, the simpler and more similar organisms were. And everyone knew that at some point in the distant past, there was no life on this planet, and then there was. But that what there was was only primitive microbes for the longest time. So even before spontaneous generation had been disproved, Rudolf Virchow had already proposed an alternate concept, that the formation of living cells requires a prior matrix. Thus, genetic and metabolic cells must have developed through an intricate sequence of increasingly complex chemical constructs, each having been naturally enhanced by the particular constituents or environmental conditions. Thomas Huxley referred to this process as abiogenesis. And first-year biology students don't know about that one, but advanced-level scientists certainly do, and they're still studying it now. When examining tiny organisms like protozoa and bacteria, it can be demonstrated that life only comes from life. There are many kinds of life, but each continues to reproduce the same kind over and over. This is indisputable. Sorry, but I have to dispute that. One of the many repeatedly demonstrated facts of evolution is the many observances of speciation, where one species becomes two or more, and they're physically and genetically distinct from each other, such that if they reproduce sexually, they can no longer interbreed, so they no longer produce the same kind. Of course, you might argue that some new species of fruit fly or cichlid fish is still a fly or it's still a fish. Well, flies and fish are both animals, so they're still the same kind. Uh, every new species that ever evolved was just a modified version of whatever its ancestors were, no matter how many different kinds may be produced. So at what point do we draw the line from one kind to another? The only taxonomic level with any functional definition is the level of species. And as I've pointed out in an earlier episode, there is no determinable definition for kinds of life. Life can never come from non-living objects. Biologists know that all cells can only come from pre-existing cells. Evolutionists theorize that inanimate objects, under certain unknown circumstances in the misty past, as they like to assert, somehow spontaneously gave birth to primitive life forms. But this presents enormous problems for anyone familiar with the nature and complexity of simple cells. This is Craig Venter, biotechnician. He's a biologist and a geneticist who builds synthetic life forms. In a sense, he creates life, and he's the first to transfect a cell with a synthetic genome. So he is proof that cells don't always come from pre-existing cells. Of course, he's an intelligent designer, but he also understands that cells 
could have formed naturally and that they must have at some point. He knows the nature and complexity of cells probably better than anyone, but he's not the only one. How about Dr. Richard Wolfenden and his friend Dr. Charles Carter, professor of biochemistry and biophysics at the University of North Carolina? There are lots more you could look up, but you're not going to find it under a simple keyword because this isn't a single-stage event. It didn't happen spontaneously. It's a sequence of separate but overlapping chemical processes, not just something that happened one day. And it didn't involve inanimate objects either. Chemicals aren't objects, and these chemicals were already self-replicating. So you are as wrong on all points as it is possible to be. As I mentioned in an earlier segment, I made a video explaining what we know about abiogenesis so far, and it's a lot more than you think. It's not that we theorize about the misty past, it's what we can show to be true with hard evidence as conclusive as a fingerprint. Even the most rudimentary cells are extremely complex. The simplest organism capable of independent life, the prokaryote bacterial cell, is a masterpiece of miniaturized complexity which makes a spaceship seem rather low-tech. Here's another source. The cell needs all its basic parts with their various functions for survival. Therefore, if the cell had evolved, it would have meant that billions of parts would have had to come into existence at the same time, in the same place, and then simultaneously come together in a precise order. The problem here is that you're getting your lessons in biology not from scientists, but from a lawyer and a guy who only has a Bachelor of Arts from a Bible college. More importantly, neither of these guys has any idea what they're talking about, and we've already seen that. As I explained earlier, these things didn't come together all at once. We now know of several distinct stages, different processes culminating in another phase. Yes, cells are complex, much too complex to have been conjured by a magic imaginary mythical mage. But we've demonstrated in the lab that these become increasingly complex all on their own as a natural reaction to their temperature and chemical conditions. Skeptics ignore the truth that it is impossible to have life without a life giver. Only God has life inherent in himself. This is what makes him God. No. The traits that define any god are magic powers, human characteristics, and immortality. Throughout mythology, some gods can be killed, but they don't stay dead. They either resurrect their original bodies, animate artificial ones, or they return with new ones. Another attribute of gods is that they can only be believed on faith in lieu of evidence, which means that Nobody can honestly say that they actually know anything about gods other than they're all apparently imaginary. But when you say that God has life in him, and you say this during a discussion of biology, then we have to know what life is. The biological understanding of life is that it has seven characteristics. All life is made of cells. Is God? Uh, living cells are also metabolic and homeostatic with some ability to balance their internal chemical environment. The other qualifications of life are that it grows, responds to stimuli, reproduces, and that it evolves. Yes, evolution is such a foundational aspect of biology that it's even required in the very definition of life, because we've already confirmed that everything that is alive, as well as many things that are nearly alive, all evolve. Evolution is an inescapable fact of population genetics, and God is a magic imaginary phantasm. It is not possible for your god to exist. Remember that life emerged on this planet long before men invented their gods. Remember also that truth is whatever statement can be shown to be true, and that doesn't apply to any of your empty assertions about God. There is no reason to imagine any magical life giver because every aspect of life from its emergence through its evolution is evidently and demonstrably entirely natural.
No one created God. Sorry, but man created God in his own image. In fact, men created many gods, and sometimes they stuck them together. Your God was cobbled out of a few different Persian, Mesopotamian, and Canaanite deities from the pagan Near East. There is no souls, no heaven or hell, none of that. It's all made up. Sorry. But is he merely a blind power? A dumb first force? Just complexity screams no. You're trying to explain the most complex thing with the least complex answer. Gods and magic are the simplest, most infantile excuses men have ever imagined to explain anything. And of course, it doesn't explain anything. And once upon a time, our ancestors believed that thunder, lightning, and volcanoes were gods in action. That comets were an omen, that the stars and planets had human characteristics, that sickness was a curse of witchcraft, and that epilepsy was demonic possession. All because that's what religion would have us believe. In each case, the real truth would never have been discovered had we been satisfied by those lies. And in each case, the reality was a revelation of whole new fields of study previously unimagined and vastly more complex than the simple excuses we made up in our ignorance. No doubt that pattern will continue, such that if we ever do discover the cause of the Big Bang or some better explanation for the origin of life, the universe, and everything, it too will be a wealth of new information with practical application and so advanced that it will render our previous beliefs in gods, ghosts, and magic just as laughably silly as every other field of study so far has already shown. The first law of thermodynamics points to a creator's eternal existence. Remember, this law says something cannot come from nothing. No, it says that matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It has no impact on quantum vacuum fluctuations where particulate matter keeps popping in and out of existence, not being created by anything. As if the subatomic level represents a semi-permeable boundary of being in this universe. Science has effectively proven that if there were not an eternal God being to create the universe, there could never have been a universe. But, as I pointed out before, it is very likely that the inflation of the universe began from a rift in the time-space continuum or some similar pan-dimensional parallel where the catalyst bears no resemblance to any being, and especially not a magical anthropomorphic immortal. Since a cause must be greater than the effect, a maker... An all-powerful God had to exist through eternity to affect the creation. The cause doesn't have to be greater than the effect either. You ever heard of a snowball effect? That's another property of emergence. Can't you get anything right? Science has unwittingly demonstrated God's existence while simultaneously debunking evolution. You never said anything in this segment of your video that even relates to evolution. You certainly haven't debunked anything. But if you think the laws of thermodynamics disprove evolution, then you're going to love this. Jeremy England, assistant professor of physics at MIT, has derived a mathematical formula that he says explains the origin of life. And the scientific community seems pretty excited about it. His formula, based on established physics, indicates that when a group of atoms is driven by an external source of energy like the sun or chemical fuel and is surrounded by a heat bath like the ocean or the atmosphere, it will gradually restructure itself in order to dissipate increasing energy. And this could mean that under certain conditions, matter inexorably acquires the key physical characteristics associated with life. In an ideal environment like the Earth, his theory renders the development of subsequent evolution not just probable, but inevitable. 
A Nobel Prize winning physicist stated, the progress of science, no matter how marvelous it appears to be, leads to dead ends and shows our final ineptitude of producing a rational explanation of the universe. Let's add an also a rational explanation for plants, animals, and human beings. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. You're mixing cosmology and evolution, two completely unrelated fields of study. So you found some quote from a scientist who believed in God and who said that decades ago, before they knew about quantum fluctuations or the Higgs boson or anything discovered in the last 20 years or more. So what? In an earlier installment of this series, I cited current physicists who are very confident that they now have perfectly workable scenarios for how the universe came about naturally from nothing and that there's no reason to imagine any God. Instead of looking for the truth of creation, science has chosen confusion, suppositions, and deceit. Ignoring the evidence, evolutionists and others are forced to conjure illusions, which should be getting easier to see for what they are. Here again, I wish this were a two-way conversation, because I would ask you what evidence I'm ignoring, and you wouldn't be able to say anything that would actually count as evidence. Not one verifiably accurate fact, which is either positively indicative of or exclusively concordant with your particular conclusion over any other. Scientists are not the ones ignoring evidence. And the only truth to creation is that there is no truth to it at all. But that doesn't matter to you because creationist organizations post a statement of faith wherein they admit that they will automatically and thoughtlessly reject any and all evidence that might ever arise should it conflict with their interpretation of Bronze Age folklore. So they have admitted in advance that no matter how true the truth really is, no amount of proof will ever change their minds. And for this reason, faith is the most dishonest position it is possible to have, and now you're trying to project your own faults onto those who will not share them. But why would highly intelligent men believe such false and silly ideas and even willingly deceive people into doing the same? This is coming from the guy who believes in Noah's Ark and talking snakes and donkeys and guys living inside fish. The reason highly intelligent people believe what we can already show to be true is because we've proven that it's not false or silly like your religious beliefs are. We don't have to deceive people like you do either, asserting things that aren't evidently true the way you do. It is not possible to defend creationism honestly. And everything I tell you about evolution, I can prove to be actual, actually factual. But every claim religion makes falls into one of two categories. Not evidently true or evidently not true. Get this. They do not want a God telling them what to do. They cannot have that. In their world, God must not exist. They want you to agree because like misery, darkness also loves company. Settle down there, Don Knotts, before you have an aneurysm. Of all the bewildering inanity you've blurted out so far, this was your most profoundly illogical. The light of reason is not darkness, and understanding is not misery. But more importantly, God doesn't tell people what to do, and even if he did, nobody listens. If you love sin, accept Jesus and all will be forgiven. But the only thing that really pisses God off is when you don't believe in him, which is another indication that he's not really real, that this is just something desperate deceivers say when they're trying to sell their bullshit. If we had any reason to believe there is a God, why would we pretend there isn't? Would that make him go away? If he was real, then no. But in this case, yes, he would. Because God isn't real. He only exists in your mind and only when you fixate on such things. Get over it. 
I know a few pastors who have given up on God, and they're all much happier now. Christ's listeners saw he spoke with authority. So do I. Speaking truth with facts allows this. No, sir. You've spoken no truth and have no facts to support you. You are a lying, ignorant ass. You feign authority because a religious mindset somehow cares more about the appearance of confidence than it does about actual factual accuracy, and you have been completely wrong about every point you've tried to make. The reason you are so confident is because you don't know anything. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a study showing the inability to gauge one's own incompetence. The more you know, the more you know you don't know, and this generates humility. So those who are very competent tend to underestimate their own ability, while those who don't know dick about Jack act like they're better than all the world's best educated expert specialists in any field. And that's you all over. Religion is all about pretending to know what you don't really know, and you're an expert at that, but only because you're too stupid to know how stupid you are. Charles Darwin recognized this 150 years before Dunning-Kruger, and his observation of your type of behavior prompts my favorite quote from him. Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. <laughs>